right now on Matter of Fact. The make of the gun, you can tell. We just heard something. You didn't flip. It was a gun, because I'm used to it. Living in a community where violence is all too familiar. Imagine being in the, in the third grade and hearing gunshots every night. How y'all doing? What we can learn about resilience from Jackson, Mississippi. We have the capacity to actually solve this ourselves. And it's sticker shock for millennials and Gen Zers just as they hit major milestones. They were born since the beginning of the 1980s, so they're well into, should I say middle age? Why is inflation hitting them so hard? Well, first of all, it's a surprise to them that there is inflation. What's ahead for the generations who have never seen an economy like this? Plus, her son was in Ukraine when the war broke out. He um, sent me a text and it said, Mom, I love you, and tell everybody thank you for praying for me. Leaving this mother anxiously watching a crisis unfold. I've never felt so hopeless. The story of the reunion that might not have been and the people left behind. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. You've seen the headlines, a national increase in violent crime. They grab our attention, but often fail to provide a clear picture of exactly what's happening. Last year, Jackson, Mississippi recorded 155 murders, almost all involved guns. It's easy to label a place for its problems. Jackson's population is about 150,000. The city's 82% black. It has a poverty rate of 25% and the highest per capita murder rate in the country. But the people there know it goes beyond statistics. It's about the immense challenges for a town. Our correspondent, Jessica Gomez, traveled to Jackson to see how the police and the community are working on a solution. The late shift for 33-year-old Jackson Police Sergeant Christian Vance. I have a lot of young people, and I say young, I mean 16, 17, 18 years old, doing violent things on a regular basis. Hey, it's Vance again. You got an update on location? It didn't take long for the first call to come in. Shots fired. Dude, calm down, no. man. This time, a domestic dispute, something Sergeant Vance says has skyrocketed since the pandemic. So, too, have homicides, a record number of people killed in Jackson last year. Our job is to stop it before police are involved. Nearby, Ira Henry, also patrolling the streets, but with no badge. If you like the little guy who just shot the gun, that's why he ran down the street. He's part of the new nonprofit Operation Good. They're violence interrupters, many of whom have served time and turned their lives around. Within minutes here too, the sounds of gunfire. It would happen several more times that afternoon. Going to the scene, I had to go into the scene. If a siren go out three, four, five minutes from now, we know somebody shot. Operation Good crews trained and paid to be on the streets, building relationships and de-escalating before things turn deadly. How we communicate with the citizens is the way it should be. Because if you got a relationship with the community, it'll stop a lot of misunderstandings. How y'all doing? Operation Good, a welcome sight for those like retired campus security officer Vera Harris. I used to go for a walk every day, sometimes twice a day. I used to walk around this block, go a mile and come back around. Right now, I'm afraid to do that. I can't do that anymore. 
her yard riddled with bullets and casings. And the sound of the gun and the make of the gun, you can tell. We just heard something. You didn't flip. It was a gun, because I'm used to it. The city of Jackson, Mississippi's capital, and a place some say is in crisis. That headline, it, it, it doesn't tell the whole story about our city. Police Chief James Davis says the majority, more than 80% of last year's homicides, were not random, but interpersonal conflicts. The pandemic widening the cracks in Jackson's fragile social foundation, where nearly a quarter of the population live in poverty, and mental illness and addiction often go untreated. There is a mental health crisis that it takes all hands on deck to address those needs in a broken community. The Jackson Police Department, like many around the country, is understaffed. Short 88 officers and a department that should be more than 350 strong. So help me God. A push for virtual policing, the chief says, has been effective. Cameras where police can't be, but there aren't enough for the growing number of high crime neighborhoods. We can't just invest in law enforcement. We can't do that. We're not going to see the results we need. Rukia Lumumba runs the umbrella group for Operation Good and other community-based organizations. She says the city hasn't prioritized funding for neighborhood-led intervention efforts. If all we're doing on one end is locking up people and doing nothing on the other end to actually create a better way of living for folks, then we're failing. Lumumba says efforts like Operation Good are working. With private donations in its first nine months, the group targeted a 45-block area. The result, which Jackson police confirm, more than 200 days with no homicides. You know, it motivates me to go another day, you know, another year. Motivation, Ira Henry says, to make a difference, especially for the next generation. They feel comfortable. They know their business is not going to be all over the street, they're not going to be talked about, not called a snitch because we're not police. Put your hand behind your back, dog. Good. Meantime, as afternoon turns into evening, Sergeant Vance says he can use all the help he can get. We have a group of kids growing up thinking that that's normal. We need to let them know that it's not a normal way to be, it's not a normal way to live, it's unacceptable. Check this out. Man, you saw how I did it? There's nothing more important than these kids. If we focus on them and, and keep on focusing, keep pressing and don't get discouraged and you know, dry their tears and pick them up and encourage them, I guarantee we'll look up in a few years and we'll be in better shape. Give me some. You ain't got to be scared of me. In Jackson, Mississippi, for matter of fact, I'm Jessica Gomez. Next week, Jessica talks with the youngest mayor ever elected in that city, Shukwe Antar Lumumba. He discusses his plan to reduce crime, his support of increasing funding for police, and even his controversial efforts to suspend the state's open carry law in Jackson. Ahead on Matter of Fact, he is one of the last American athletes to escape Ukraine, caught up in the chaos of war. You see multiple kids just there freezing. You see parents there like trying to keep themselves warm, keep their kids warm and stuff, and it just was a bad feeling how his journey home became a way to help those left behind. And later, she drafted the Equal Rights Amendment in 1923. So how come it's still not the law?
Russian war in Ukraine has caused the greatest humanitarian crisis in Europe since the Second World War. It's almost impossible to comprehend the magnitude of suffering. Thousands of lives that have been lost, millions of livelihoods that have been disrupted, and millions of people who are now seeking refuge outside of their homeland. 31-year-old Maurice Creek of Maryland was in Ukraine playing pro basketball with the team NBC Mikhailov when the war began. Today, we share his perspective and his mother's as he found himself caught in the middle of events in the early days of the war. His story providing a window into what so many people there are experiencing, desperately attempting to escape the brutality of war. Here he is in his own words. I got a phone call from my mother at 5 o'clock in the morning. So I pop up out of bed and I'm like, Mom, what's going on? She's like, the war has started. My sister called and she said, where's Maurice? And I said, he's still in the Ukraine. And she said, Pammy, the war has started. And I just dropped to my knees. I was sick. It was solely dark. Like, it was no light because he was up under martial law. And so I was terrified of that to the point where I wasn't sleeping at night. I was hearing bombs. Um, the first time I heard a bomb, you know, we were just like terrified. I'm just trying to get home now. My coach, he had called my phone and he was basically like, hey, I'm about to come pick you up. I didn't know he was taking me back to his apartment. His apartment had a bomb shelter in it. When I got down there, you could just tell like it was solely to keep people safe. When I turned the corner into the room that I was supposed to go in, you could just see his family right there, terrified. Um, another family in there, like terrified and had kids. And um, we, you know, just try to keep each other comfort and safe. He um, sent me a text and it said, Mom, I love you. And then it just went radio silent. He was, at that time, had gone down in the bomb shelter, and we knew that he was going to a border. We didn't know when. My coach, his wife and sister were leaving that day as well. So I, was, I got in the car with them. The road to the Moldavian border was absolutely nuts. And going through the checkpoints, and you got to have your passport, and you can see where the bombs hit on the road. You can see, like, people's luggage was in the road, was in the area and stuff. When I got to the Moldavian border, you could just see that it was going to be a while before you got out. That's like hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of people trying to get out. It was windy outside, and you seen parents there, like, trying to keep themselves warm, keep their kids warm and stuff, and it just was a bad feeling, like, you know, for my teammates, it's, it's bad. That brotherly bond, and you, you leave a brother behind, you kind of feel like that hurt. So I pray for everybody in Ukraine, not just the basketball players. But when I turned that corner and I see my mom in that purple sweater, <laughs> uh, I knew that I was going to get the biggest hug in the world. I knew he was here, but I still couldn't let him go. Um, and I think I said to him, let me look at you. Let me just take a look at you. It was just the breath that that's the air that I needed. It was the, the best feeling in the world. Next on Matter of Fact, housing costs, groceries, gas, prices rising at rates many have never seen. It's all really kind of a perfect storm. Hear what an economist says about the gap between paychecks and prices for the decade ahead. And later, 
Think you know how many Americans are Latinx? Or how many millionaires there are? Most Americans get the numbers wrong about who lives in the United States. We take a look at perception versus reality. Prices are rising everywhere right now. And it's hard not to worry when we see the costs of housing and gas and lumber and groceries and transportation all going up at a rate many of us have never experienced. That's especially true for Gen Zers and millennials. Ironically, their pandemic spending is driving demand for big ticket items, pushing prices up. Last year, they accounted for more than half of home mortgage loan applications and bought more new cars than any other age group. Linda Nazareth is an economist and a futurist focusing on population changes. She's the host of the podcast, Work and the Future. Millennials, how old are they exactly? And Gen Zers, how old are they? If you look at millennials, they were born since the beginning of the 1980s, so they're well into, should I say middle age? If we look at Gen Z, they're the group that came after them. So we're talking about teens, 20s, 30-somethings, basically. Why is inflation hitting them so hard? Well, first of all, it's a surprise to them that there is inflation uh, because they haven't really grown up with this. I mean, we've had quite a while where prices have been pretty stable, interest rates have been pretty low, it hasn't really been an issue, and now we have a very different situation. So they're learning what this means, that the paycheck that they relied on to buy a certain, you know, grocery basket and pay for this mortgage payment isn't going as far, and that's a shock. They're at the part of their life where they're acquiring things. So it is hitting them fairly hard. I mean, they're kind of pivotal in what drives the economy, right, the, the, the millennials. Yeah, they're certainly the largest part of the labor force, if you look at North America and a lot of the world right now. We're talking about the people who are taking the entry-level jobs, probably taking the management jobs that are coming open, and they will be an increasingly large part of the labor force. So, you know, you have to look at how they act in terms of being economic agents, in terms of, you know, their actions, that's going to make a difference to everything. We've heard all about the great resignation, right, and people hopping to new opportunities. Does that mean that wages are also rising as prices creep up as well? They are rising, but there's a gap between the two. I mean, we're looking probably two percentage points between the difference in price prices and the wage increases, and it changes month to month, but they're certainly not equal. So it will be an interesting year because we are seeing interest rates going higher that will slow the economy somewhat. Can you explain the mechanism that's making prices rise? One thing is that interest rates have been low for a long period of time, and there was a reason for that post-2010, well, you know, when the economy was slower, and then we had the pandemic, which meant that we really had to worry about economic growth. It was like the economy was grinding to a halt. So, of course, the Federal Reserve kept interest rates very low, and that tends to give rise to rising prices. We can leave rates low because there's all this slack in the economy because of the pandemic. We had a lot of the world coming back actually pretty nicely, which isn't fine. It bid prices up for things like commodities, oil, and the like. And then you had the supply chain issues. Now we have this extra conflict in Russia, Ukraine, which is also sending commodity prices higher, oil prices higher. So it's all really kind of a perfect storm. How does all this impact income inequality? If you look at jobs and you look at who was able to keep working and keep making more money, it was very much people with more education, uh, with probably more advantages going in. People who were less advantaged definitely lost ground. Nobody likes 
having it cost more to fill up their car. Some groups can really bear it better without having their food budget impacted. And, you know, we're going to see the impact of this over the next year or so. Linda Nazareth, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Soledad. Coming up on Matter of Fact, the U.S. Census keeps count of Americans by race, creed, color, and sex. Our question? So why do people miscalculate the demographics? We'll tell you when we come back. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Most Americans get the numbers wrong about who lives in the United States. That's according to a survey by YouGov America. Americans believe the country is 41% black. The reality, eh, it's like 12%. For Native Americans, those surveyed guessed 27%, but it's actually 1%. People think the Latinx population is 39%. No, it's 17%. Asian Americans estimated to be 29% of the population. They make up 6%. Those surveyed estimated that 21% of the population identifies as transgender. It's actually 0.6%. And when it comes to religion, people guessed Muslim Americans were about 27% of the population. It's 1%. Jewish Americans were estimated at 30% of the population, they're 2%. And they think 26% of households make more than $500,000. The reality is that's 1%. They also underestimated those who have high school diplomas at 65%, when really that number is 89%. So why do people miscalculate the demographics? Experts say it boils down to biases, how we see the world and who is in our exact community. Next on Matter of Fact, remember the ERA that promised equality for women? The ERA is still not enshrined in the Constitution. What happened to the movement for the 28th Amendment to the Constitution? Finally, we celebrate an anniversary for women in America. 50 years ago, on March 22nd, the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA, passed in Congress. The amendment states equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. The amendment was drafted by a feminist named Alice Paul, one of the leaders of the suffrage movement. She wrote the ERA in 1923 and it was introduced to Congress. It was presented in every session after that and finally passed in 1972. 50 years later, it's still not law. Before the ERA could become the 28th Amendment, it had to be ratified by 38 states, and that took a while. The final endorsement only coming in 2020, thanks to Virginia. Well, now it's stuck in a dispute about ratification deadlines. So we might be waiting a very long time. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. If you missed our top stories about how Jackson, Mississippi is working to stop crime before it starts, the impact of inflation on millennials and Gen Zers, one young American's escape from war-torn Ukraine, and what the census tells us about the nation's reality versus perceptions, just go to matteroffact.tv. And listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI, Pluto, and YouTube.